Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, and listen as we have a conversation about the mundane. One thing that we can promise is that our conversation will be less than fascinating, so you can feel free to just drift off. Thank you for joining me. We hope you will listen and sleep. I'm your host, Marco Timpano. My mics have been put into a different position, so hopefully this will make the podcast sound even better. And someone who's going to make my podcast sound even better is my guest. And today, my guest is Jenny Arena. Welcome, Jenny, to the Insomnia Project. Thank you, Marco. It's a pleasure to be here. Jenny, you and I have known each other for years, and we started, or we met each other through an audio world, for lack of a better um, explanation. Uh, do you want to do you want to fill the listeners in on how or where we met? Yes. So Marco and I actually were part a of a radio show on York University Radio. Um, I'm going to say, do I dare say no, how many years listen, ago, you, Marco? You can or you don't have to. Let's just say, you know, a few years back. A few years back, uh, York University Radio, uh, CHRY. Uh, the program was called Red Hot and Green geared towards second and third generation Italian Canadians. Mm -hmm. So um, I was actually introduced by someone who was already part of the program. Um, she had me sit in and see what was going on, thought I would be interested. Who and was that? Carmelina. Oh, Carmelina Krupi. Hello, Carmelina. I need to get her in the studio. Yes. I need to get everyone from Red Hot and Green and in That the would studio. be great. Maybe a little Red Hot reunion. Yeah. Everyone knows who listens to this podcast, and I'll, I'll, I will often reference my Italian background or my Italian culture, and I'm sure some of you roll your eyes. But that's how I got into um, radio, really, was through my culture, and I have a love for my heritage, and so do you, and I hope our listeners have a love for theirs, whatever it may be. Um, now, Jenny, one thing that's really fascinating is you and I have roots in the same part of Italy. Yes. So Let's talk both, a little bit about that. For sure. So we are both from uh, the southern part of Italy, the toe of the boot, if you will, Calabria. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe it's your dad's side that we are uh, connected on in terms of the location, correct, you, Marco? You got it. And both your folks are from Calabria, right? Yes. Yes. Both my parents. Mm -hmm. And Calabria is the toe and a little bit more than, because if I say the toe, people just think that tip part, but it's also the from the toe to just before you hit the sole. Probably, yeah, that's Is a that good fair? description. I would say that's before, a fair description. Before the arch, I love talking about. Speaking of boots, what do you value in a good boot? Jenny? Oh, comfort mm -hmm. all the way. Comfort. Okay. First and foremost, comfort. Uh, in fact, even comfort over fashion, I'm not going to lie. Okay. But do you appreciate a leather boot or does that not matter? Leather, yes, absolutely. Um, good quality leather, mm -hmm. soft. Um, it's similar to, uh, I did actually pick up a pair of really nice boots in Tuscany, uh, which they're known for their leather right. in that area of Italy. So, yes. Are they functional boots for our weather is my question. Uh, probably not for our weather, no. Mm -hmm. um, very, uh, very comfortable, very comfortable, very well made. Um, but yeah, probably not the most functional. So what do you use? I know we're just on a tangent here. But That's all right. What do you use for our winter weather boot? speaking boot-wise? You know what? Um, I'm a big fan of Timberlands. Oh, really? I love the Timberland, yes. Okay. Uh, they're, they're comfortable. 
somewhat fashionable, you sure. know, and um, and they're made to stand up to, you know, snow, sleet, mm-hmm. slush, all that fun stuff. For me, the tread is so important in our weather. Oh, for sure. Because if you don't have a good deep tread, like in a snow tire, let's say, it can be very slippery, especially if you hit, you know, when snow hits ice and you don't see it because it's covered with snow and you just get that immediate slip. Yes. That's when you need that traction. For sure. For sure. Yes. Especially if you're wandering through streets like Montreal where they don't even shovel the sidewalks. Or the cobbles, you know, they have a old Montreal has cobblestones. Uh, getting back to the boot of Italy. Yes. After that tangent of <laughs> what boots we like to wear. Tell me about. Let's talk about Calabria. Okay. Um, So I was actually born and raised here in Canada. However, uh, very passionate about my parents' Calabres roots. Um, Mm. Grew up speaking um, the Calabres dialect, actually, before I was even uh, introduced to the proper Italian. Mm -hmm. Or the standard standard Italian, which is spoken, you know, throughout all of Italy, right? Or understood throughout Mm -hmm. all of Italy. Um, And And if you, if, pardon me for No, no, not at all. I want to mention your website. Um, Jenny, along with being a great friend of mine, has a website. She's a food blogger, and that's called Fables and Focaccia. And that also sort of intersects with your southern Italian roots. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Um, Just a quick segue into the name, um, Fables being stories. So I'm a storyteller, and I love to share the stories that go behind the food that I'm preparing. Okay, so we're going to talk about some of those stories. So it's going to be a little insomnia trigger warning that this episode might get a little bit more exciting than what you're used to when we talk about those stories. So I'm just giving you the heads up um, in case you need to refer to another pod, another episode to fall asleep to. Some of our listeners like to just sort of use our podcast to ease anxiety or just enjoy their evening. So um, I'm just giving you that heads up. So back to Calabria, back to southern Italy. Um, People might not be as familiar with Calabria as they are with Tuscany or with Rome or Milan or Venice. What would be something that people would recognize that comes out of that area that we both share as our heritage. Um, I would say one of the one of the things is the history. Um, one of the one of the famous uh, discoveries was the bronze uh, statues, the Greek bronze statues, bronzi di Riacci is mm-hmm. uh, the translation. Which, um, when the discovery was made, I believe in the nineteen seventies, um, it was pretty big to do uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. And um, the interesting part of the discovery is where they were found. Absolutely in the sea. Yeah. They uncovered them in the sea, and um, and. It's funny because old Calabria, like some of the older towns, like there's a town called Locri, um, which is actually built on like old Greek ruins. So mm-hmm. you can find a lot of like of the old kind of historic things in that town. And parts of Calabria sort of uh, oscillated between being part of what eventually became Italy to what was Greece. So if I'm not mistaken, the Greek mathematician Pythagoras was born in what is now Calabria, which was formerly Greece. Yes, yes. So that's I find that always so fascinating mm-hmm. how how countries, how places on the planet have oscillated between other places or other countries based on war or based on a whole bunch of other different um, factors. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Calabria, interestingly, like Sicily, much mm-hmm. like Sicily, both being in the south, um, very strong influences from the Greeks, uh, mm-hmm. from the Arabs. So you will find that in um, in some of the architecture. You'll find that in the food as yes. well. 
It's interesting that you pick the bronze statues as the signifier to what is Calabria for the world. Because if I may, I'll pick mine and see if we're, you know, close to on the same page. So think about what your number two would be, and I'll tell you what my number one is. Okay. And that is Bergamont. Yes. So most of the world's Bergamont comes from Calabria. Absolutely. Yes, they are actually probably the primary uh, grower of bergamot for all of Italy. And a lot of times when you look at the source of bergamot, now for our listeners who are like, what is bergamot? If you've ever had Earl Grey tea, it's bergamot that gives it its distinct flavor. So yes, and that is uh, a flavor that throughout Calabria, um, mm. particularly in recent years, has been in the, the flavor profile has been introduced in, in many components such as liqueurs, uh, jams. So you're finding a lot more uh, bergamot product coming out of the area. And, and if you're still scratching your head then thinking to yourself, but Jenny and Marco, I still don't know what bergamot is. You mentioned what it flavor is like and that it's used in products. What is the actual food item? How would you describe it, Jenny? Um, I think if I had to describe it, it's a cross between like a lemon and a lime, maybe some orange, kind of a really ugly looking lemon. A citrus. Yeah, I would yeah. say it, it doesn't look spectacular. And unlike orange and lime, you can't necessarily just cut it and eat it or like an orange, let's say, mm -hmm. because you wouldn't do that with a lime and lemon. But it's definitely used for flavoring. Absolutely. Yes. Let's get into some of the stories. You talked about fables and focaccia and how you talk about stories behind food. Mm -hmm. What's one of your favorite uh, stories? You know what? For me, um, it's more of a, I would say more of a lifestyle than a story. Okay. But I love the fact that there, you know, my parents growing up in a, in a poorer area of the country, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, so they had to use up everything. Mm -hmm. um, nothing went to waste. And that uh, that belief or that food waste, no food waste philosophy has stuck with me um, to this day. Like I'm still a huge proponent of no food waste. And it's actually come to light now and it's part of uh, culinary culture. Those terms like from nose to tail cuisine and whatnot where nothing gets wasted. Yes, every part of the animal, for example, mm. gets used. Um, and then a, a great example of this um, is Massimo Bottura. He's like one of the Michelin star chefs in Italy. And he has actually taken it to a whole new level where he's even opened up a restaurant where they serve um, leftovers, basically. Yeah. So what you know, what is left over from other restaurants or from grocery stores, they take it and they prepare incredible meals with it. Is there a leftover or is there a part of some food item that may get wasted in someone else's kitchen that doesn't get wasted in yours? Uh, you know what? Bread, believe it or not. Okay. Tell me about of, that. A lot of people tend to just throw away bread after it goes stale, right? Sure. You eat it when it's fresh. Yes, nice and crispy on the outside, soft on the inside. Um, but hey, I'm guilty of that too. So if you're listening and saying, I do that, you know, listen, I'm on, on page with you. So tell me, what do you do with your bread when it's no longer freshly baked, let's say? Okay, well, first of all, you can actually reconstitute it a bit. Okay. Um, if, it's, if you've had the bread for maybe just a couple of days, if you wrap it in foil, add just a little bit of water to it, 
put it in the oven, um, bake it for a, f- a few minutes, maybe like 10 minutes on like 350 degrees. Um, it will actually come out tasting like fresh bread oh, again. Oh, there you go. You know how you can reconstitute cheese, hard cheeses? Have you ever done that? No. So sometimes if you leave, let's say, a chunk of parmigiano out, it gets dry and it and it's um, it, it no longer has that sort of... Um, how, do, how can I describe it? That cheese, like, it, it becomes hard. It mm-hmm. becomes hard, and it almost has a, um oiled coating over it, and it looks almost like it's a brick almost at that point. It no longer looks like cheese. If you take a tea towel and wet it so that it's damp and wrap the cheese in the tea towel and put it in your fridge for a day or two, the loss of water from the cheese will get reabsorbed and it will become more like it once was. Oh, okay. That's good to know. I'll have to remember that Mm -hmm. next time I've got some some cheese that's a little bit uh, on the harder side. Back to bread. Uh, Back to bread. Okay, so um, yes, you can reconstitute it. Um, I uh, will make my own breadcrumbs from it. So I I will toast it off in the oven um, and then grind it up to make my own breadcrumbs or croutons for salads. Simple enough. Yes. um, Also, um, it makes great stuffing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, chop it up, add... uh, add some other flavoring elements to it and you've got yourself a stuffing. Um, bread pudding is always a huge hit as well. Of uh, course. Not a very Italian dish, but you know what? My, uh, I'm a mom and um, my kids absolutely love it. So it's a nice treat. Um, and I've made it both savory and well, sweet. So I didn't realize you could have a savory bread pudding. So yeah, you could do for like a lunch with a salad. Um, you know, again, it's your same base like with eggs. Like you make the custard with milk and eggs, but you would add savory elements like maybe some Parmigiano cheese oh, or uh, some sun-dried tomatoes. Um, I made a version of it once with um, rapini, broccoli rabe, and some sausage. That was a great brunch dish. So My wife will often make a dish called estrada. Which I've never heard before. It's certainly not any area of Italy that I know, but that's what she calls it. And she'll take leftover bread and she'll rip it up in pieces and then incorporate it into a um, egg dish that she then bakes. So, you know, egg, sausage, tomatoes, whatever is lying around mixed with this bread in a, I guess, like a casserole dish. With cheese, plenty of cheese, whatever cheese she happens to have. So if it's mozzarella, it's mozzarella. If it's cheddar, it's cheddar. Whatever we have, that's a good melting cheese. And then she'll pop it in the oven and bake it and then slice it up and we'll have it for breakfast. There you go. Yeah, similar. I would say it's probably similar to, Mm -hmm. yeah, same idea as the savory bread pudding. Mm -hmm. Any story connected with food that that surprised you or you found humorous? Um, there's one, oh, uh, again, it kind of relates back to sort of the poor, the poor upbringing of people from the South, um, sure. and how, how they would make other ingredients, uh, try to resemble something that maybe, you know, a, a more noble family would have. So for example, um, and it's funny speaking of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs were often tossed with pasta, uh, to resemble parmigiano. So they, they often refer to breadcrumbs on pasta as the poor man's parmigiano. Oh, there you go. There you go. So again, it's making use of what you have. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that's something I found very interesting, um, for sure is, is sort of that reusing items and, and trying to turn them into something else. I want to deviate here and talk about kitchen tools. Yes. What are three of the tools in your kitchen that get used the most? Uh, definitely a good knife. 
Um, I did invest in one of those nice willing uh, knives. Um, so and and get it sharpened properly. Okay. Um, so because you can never, you know, you need a good sharp knife in the kitchen. Um, they say the most dangerous thing in the kitchen is a dull knife. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more. Um, the second thing I would say is probably a really good microplane because I use it for um, again, you can use it for um, grating cheese, mm-hmm. grating uh, things like nutmeg or cinnamon. Um, grating chocolate for desserts. So it's a, it's a multi-purpose tool for sure. And um, you know what? The hands, believe it or not. Oh. The hands are the chef's or the cook's best friends. Sure. You, you can do so much with your hands, kneading, mixing. Really, that's I think that's the key. That's the key piece of equipment is the hands. Now, do you have any secret advice that you discovered that you're like, oh, I wish I knew this years ago, and now that I know it, it's my favorite thing. I'll give you an example so you can be like, okay, just to think for a moment. I discovered, and I've talked about it on the po- podcast before. I, Jenny, I talk about things, and then I'll re-talk about them in another episode. So I can only imagine what listeners think when they hear me go on about certain things. But the best way to peel ginger is with a spoon. Oh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah, so if you have to peel ginger and you use a knife, you're cutting off so much of the ginger. There's so much waste. But if you take a spoon... Ginger is relatively soft, and you just scrape it with the spoon. The skin from the ginger comes right off, and it is phenomenal. Another tip that I learned is if you're making hard-boiled eggs, you know how it's difficult sometimes to take the shell off the hard-boiled egg? Sometimes it'll stick to the Mm -hmm. actual egg, and it'll be tricky. Put a little bit of vinegar in the water that you boil with, yeah, and then cool mm. them right away. Oh, my goodness, Marco, you taught me something new today. Well, I'm always struggling with those hard-boiled eggs. Yeah, so just, I don't even measure. So I'm boiling the water, and then I'll just kind of white vinegar, pour it in as much as, quanto basta, as much as you want. And then once they're done, put them under cold water right away, and then peel them soon wow. thereafter. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try that, and I'll let you know how it works okay. out for sure. Uh, let me think. Hang on. Um Hmm, that's a tough question. I gave you all that time <laughs> to think, and she was too wrapped in listening to I what know. I had to say. I like to absorb information, especially when it comes to cooking. Um, Here's another tip. So do you make fresh pasta? I do. Do you use the pasta? The um, pasta machine? Like it's Yeah, it's like a little... Um, like a hand crank almost. Thank you, because I don't want people to think it's like the one that you get with the... I'm making a hand gesture. <laughs> you know that big machine? The, oh, the KitchenAid mixer. Thank <laughs> you. Yes. <laughs> Right now, I'm just miming it. It's like we're playing charades and Jenny has to guess what I mean. Um, but if you use the hand crank one, the one that sort of has a vice grip to the to your mm-hmm. surface table or whatever you're doing, never wash that. Never wash the inside because it'll rust. Yes. Just dust it with a bit of flour. And if you have a brush, just clean it out that way. But do not put that in the dishwasher especially. But do not wash it with water. Because if any water stays within the mechanisms, it will rust and there goes your machine. Okay. Well, actually, now on that vein, you reminded me yeah, of something. I knew I there would. you go. Okay. With, speaking of equipment, um, so I'm I'm old school, and when I make my espresso coffee, I use the stovetop mocha, mm. uh, which is like a little pot you brew the espresso on 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 top of the stove. For anyone who may not know, Bialetti being the quintessential maker of that uh, stovetop. Uh, coffee maker, mm-hmm. uh, which looks like kind of like the Tin Man. 
That's from a the Wizard great of Oz. way to describe it, actually, Merkel. Yeah, if you had to describe it, the Tin Man. Yes, um, it's one of those things that if you have it or you know it, it's you can you can visualize it. But if you don't, you're like, what exactly are they talking about? Mm-hmm. So the uh, the mocha, much like a wok, needs to be seasoned, mm-hmm. and um, so that's one thing that uh, I learned a little bit later in life that you're not supposed to again, not supposed to wash it with soap and water. Yes, you do rinse it out with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you do have to get the coffee grinds out of the machine, but never use soap on it. Um, it just needs to be seasoned, much like a wok. So the more you use the mocha, the better your coffee ends up tasting. In fact, you'll see in people's kitchens their mocha or their coffee pot maker from their grandparents or their parents, and it just looks like it's been through everything. You're like, that's the ugliest kitchen equipment you've ever seen, and it will make the best espresso coffee because I have a fairly new one and I know it doesn't I know it needs a few years before it really comes out wonderful Mm -hmm. so for example if I'm making you an espresso after this podcast I will not be using that I will be using one that the handle is burnt off cracked and you'll be like and you know anyone who knows their espresso will never won't even bat an eyelash if they see that because they know oh that's the coffee maker that makes the best coffee in the house. Mm-hmm. I think basically anything that you see some wear wear mm-hmm. on, uh, even for um, baking stones, for example, um, I, I like to use stoneware in the kitchen uh, for baking. It gives you like a nice crisp uh, pizza dough, for example, if you're making okay. pizza. Um, bake it on stoneware and it's nice and crispy. Are you talking about those like little those pizza stones, like the, the round? That, yes, they're like that's, round. Yes. Uh, flat and round and it looks it literally looks like a piece of stone or a piece of clay um again is it made of ceramic no it's like it's stone it's um i can't remember what stone it is exactly but it's a stone and um again that doesn't get washed with soap and water it just gets rinsed off or brushed off and the more you use it um and season it then the uglier it looks it turns like it looks like horribly burnt brown but you will get the best pizza off that stone oh wow um, what do you use when you make gnocchi to shape your gnocco? That's a question mm. of all questions of all time that you can ask an Italian and it'll take them a moment. What is the item that you use to make your gnocco shape when you're making gnocchi? So I actually use a gnocchi paddle. You do? Okay. I do use a gnocchi paddle. So it's, um, I, I don't know, how would you describe it? Almost like a mini washing board with a that's handle? That's great. That's a, so picture Picture an item the size of a computer mouse that is flat, made of wood, and ridged with a small handle. Ridged like a washboard, but people don't know what a washboard yes, is anymore. Yes, that's true in this so, day and age. Um, uh, corrugated. That Oh, perfect. There yes, Marco, go. corrugated. Yes. So you use that. I do use that. Okay. However, I'm not going to lie. In okay. times of laziness, I will quickly roll it over a fork. Okay. Yes, because with the paddle, you do have to, you know, keep flowering it from time to time. Of course you have to. Yeah. So, but uh, when I'm really kind of whipping them out quickly, then I just kind of roll the dough over a fork. Okay. See, I I have the, um, what, do, what do we just call it? The, gno- the, the gnocchi, gnocchi paddle? The gnocchi paddle. I prefer them just cut, not even Oh, rolled. not even ridged. No, I like them as... As pillow-like as possible. That's ah, my favorite. Although okay. I do have the gnocchi paddle, and I know that's the that's the classic or the let's say the proper way mm-hmm. because you're giving ridges to the gnocchi, which will soak up more sauce. But give it to me pillow-like, and I'm happy as can be. That's true. Actually, to go to go back to that, the real original uh, tool is a basket. 
So if you go through Italy and you see like a nonna or a grandmother um, making gnocchi, she'll often have like a basket and she rolls the gnocchi off the bottom of that basket to so get those ridges. So the impression, those ridges come from the, the weave of the basket. Of the basket oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Um, I've seen pasta made with spokes from a bicycle. Yes, that as well, too. The um, In Italian, they call that the maccheroni al ferro. Yeah. Uh, uh, with an iron is the literal translation. Yeah, but. it might not actually be a spoke from a bicycle, but it has that um, steel mm, shape of a bicycle. Yeah, or almost a, like a knitting needle, but thinner, yeah, yeah. a little bit thinner than a knitting needle, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the pasta dough gets rolled around that. What's the surface that you use when you're baking or making dough? So I actually had my father made for me a giant um, wood board. So like think the most massive cutting board you've ever seen. Okay. Um, I, and I like to use that. Mm-hmm. Um, marble is a good surface too, but I don't always have marble handy, let's face it. It's um, heavy too, right? And it's heavy to move. Yeah, like moving a piece of marble versus moving a piece of wood board, mm, totally the, different. But the beauty of marble, correct me if I'm wrong because I've never used it to make anything, is... Uh, it stays cool, right? Yes. So when you're working the dough, your hands will heat it up, but the surface will keep it cool? Is yes, that right? the surface that... keeps it cool, and it doesn't stick either because I do have to heavily flour my wood surface for things not to stick sometimes. I need to make a correction because on a previous episode that I had with um, Marilla Wax, I talked about a Devonshire clanger, but what I meant to say was a Bedfordshire clanger. So I picked the wrong place, and I'm sure my UK listeners were stomping their feet and very upset about it. So I'm correcting myself. It is not the Devonshire clanger, but the be- the Bedford clanger. Okay, Mark, Bedford will you care to explain what that is? Because yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit uh, stumped right now. Okay, Jenny, I need you to make this item. Okay. You don't have to make it for me. I just need you to make it because I need to know someone who's made it. So will you do me this favor at some point? doesn't have to be now. It can be months ahead, but you make this thing and then you report back to me. Okay. So the Bedfordshire Clanger is a pastry dish that they make in, that they made in Bedfordshire for um, the men who would go work in various, uh, you know, various places where they had to like, I I don't know if they have mines, so I don't want to say the mines, but they, they would go off to work and this would be their lunch, part of their lunch. And it's a pastry that they would fill. Now, a clanger is just traditionally filled with, let's say, pork, or you could make a sweet or savory version of it. So you could make a, like an apple turnover type clanger or a meat-filled pastry. But in Bedfordshire, this is what they did. They took the clanger and they did half with pork and half with apple. And they would divide it. They'd put a little bit of the pastry in the between so they wouldn't mix. So that if you, the person who was going off to work, we're having this. You could eat one side, and that was your savory, and then flip it over or get to the bottom, and you would get to your dessert. Wow, that is genius. So I went online the other day to see if there's recipes on how to do it, and I'm going to try to do it. But since you are an expert in the kitchen, I just want you to do a clanger I and let me know. I am so on that. Okay. <laughs> I love that idea. I think that's genius. Two in one. Yeah, so uh, when I was talking with Marilla Wax, I was talking about it, and I couldn't remember the name of it, and please forgive me because it's just my own lack of memory and and whatnot because I really do love the United Kingdom, and I love going there. And something about me, Jenny, that I don't know if you know because we share the same heritage, but 
there's something about British things that makes me so happy. So if I could eat a scone and drink a tea and have clotted cream Mm. and jam, you won't see me any happier than that. That is that is pretty much a picture of happiness mm-hmm. right there. So, it, and the UK is actually on my bucket list of places to visit. Have I, you not been? I have not been, um, and I did swear that my next travel destination would be the UK. So, hopefully, I'll I'll get around to it in the next year. It's one of those places that every time I go, I love it more and more. And there's other places on the globe that I really enjoy. And I always mention, you know, I love New Jersey. Every time I go to New Jersey. I just have a great time. Every time I go to Calgary, I have a fantastic time. And every time I go back to L.A., I love it more and more. So um, those are the places that always resonate with me. And I I wasn't a huge fan of L.A. the first time Mm -hmm. or the second time I went. But now that I'm going more and more, it's like, oh, I really am starting to appreciate Los Angeles. So there you go. That's great, Marco. So maybe I'll have to get some travel tips from you then next time I uh, I make a trip. I did stop in Los Angeles once okay. um, a few years ago. Drove through, did did the very touristy thing. Of course, uh, you Hollywood have to. Boulevard, you know, Universal Studios, that kind of thing. But um, I'm sure there's much more to it than that. There's nothing wrong with doing those things, especially if you have a limited time. Like I mean, when you go to New York, there's so much to do. But I feel like you have to cross off some of those classic things because you've seen them and film, TV, and literature that you're like, I just got to see it with my own eyes, whether it be the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, Wall Street, whatever it is, right? Anyways, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Oh, wow, that, that, that was a quick time frame. I'm telling you, Jenny, from talking about our boots to clangers and, to every, and bergamot and everything in between, that's amazing. Well, thank you, Marco, for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you. And I do invite you back to the Insomnia Project anytime you want. But after you make the clangor, so we can talk about that as that well. That sounds great. I will definitely do that. Thank you for listening to the Insomnia Project. Please send us an email of topics you'd like to see us cover. And uh, if you have any tips with regards to food items or food tools that we can pass on to our listeners, we always appreciate that. This episode was recorded in Toronto, Canada, and it was produced by Drumcast Productions. We hope you listened and slept.